Welcome to the Leadership for Broadening Participation podcast. This podcast is part of the NSF-funded Golden Project, Geosciences Opportunities for Leadership in Diversity and Equity Network, supporting the post-award training and development for gold PIs. We begin this episode by returning to something we heard from Kelly back in the introductory episode. We were talking about this NSF funding program called GOLD, Geosciences Opportunities for Leadership and Diversity, that is the basis for these podcasts, and the motivation for GOLDEN, the professional development program for the PIs of the five GOLD projects. If it's about one doing research in his or her own area where somebody is alone and in the laboratory and your only influences are the natural world, acts of God. I think that's a different model than when you are depending on someone to change hearts and minds. And that's a different way of thinking about how success is going to actually be achieved. But what has emerged from that, I think we would both agree, are sound projects with strong leadership, with individuals who can take the heat as the change agent, They're grounded in themselves. They can read the room. They are compassionate for those who don't get it. They are not risk averse. They don't mind using their privilege when they have to. It's rare to find this big a group with that in common who hasn't been doing this work over a long period of time. Kelly makes an important point here that we glossed over in that first episode. Changing hearts and minds is not just a different kind of success. It's a different way of achieving success. And the attributes that Kelly lists are important, but they are not a replicable process or a checklist of ingredients. As we have seen through the previous episodes, leadership for broadening participation is nonlinear, long-term, sensitive to initial conditions, full of hills and vales. So then, how do we measure it? This penultimate episode is about that question. Measurements of success inform many significant forms of decision-making, from institutional and monetary investment to intra- and interpersonal decisions about time, risks, goals, and strategies. This is quite enough to make metrics of success important, but in addition to that, success related to diversity efforts is particularly fraught, as Laura spoke about here during one of our mastery classes. I've been working today on our institution's strategic plan statement on diversity and inclusion. I am also really facing this kind of perfectionist fear because I feel like this big burden that more than the other elements of our strategic plan, it kind of has to be perfect. It is just this feeling that I, I can't fail on this because A, it's too important to me and B, it's going to be scrutinized in a completely different way from the other one that I was writing about, which was on like urban sustainability. If you're a leader of broadening participation efforts, or if one or more of your social identities is subject to underrepresentation, bias, stereotype threat, or other extramural pressures to prove yourself, you know what Laura is talking about. Carolyn talked about it too back in the code switching episode when she said she has only one chance to get it right as a diversity leader working with scientists. So how do we measure success where we can't afford to fail? The answer to that question sheds light on how progress is best measured in any complex change process. Pay attention to the leading indicators, not the lagging indicators. 
Lagging indicators, for example, has participation broadened, represent goals that are known before the change process begins. They are the antithesis to a current problem, or the articulation of a preferred future, and are typically the product of complex formulas. Leading indicators help us derive those formulas. They represent the often unknown component pieces of the end goal, and as such, they signal the beginning of change, long before lagging indicators may register any movement at all. If success on a lagging indicator tells us that the puzzle is solved, identifying leading indicators helps us recognize the puzzle pieces. When leading indicators are noticed and given their due, they literally lead change efforts towards success, while also providing the motivation to live and fight for another day. Leading indicators fall into the category of formative evaluation, while lagging indicators relate to summative evaluation. We're all more familiar with, and typically more focused on, summative evaluation, often to our detriment. For example, a typical college class includes graded quizzes, papers, and or final exams. Less common are the ungraded formative evaluations that exist only to promote learning and improve teaching, such as the one-minute paper, where students take one minute to write out the concept that was just covered in lecture in their own words, or the muddiest point paper, where students take one minute to write out a question or confusion about something in today's lecture. We skip over the opportunities for formative evaluation in the name of resource efficiency. They take time, and more often than not, they disrupt our carefully laid plans. If I've just delivered my most brilliant lecture on differential equations, but formative evaluation tells me that half the students didn't understand it, now what? I could just blame it on the students. But what if I can't afford to fail? Then the disruption caused by formative evaluation is just what I need, along with the information it provides about what I might do differently. If I don't yet know how to succeed on the summative evaluation, or if past summative evaluations indicate significant failure, then formative evaluation is necessary to help me develop the strategies and skills I need for success. This is especially true for a topic like broadening participation, a complex goal related to an entrenched problem where we've seen so little progress on the lagging indicators and where we can't afford to fail. Indeed, we might say that leadership for broadening participation is forged in the capacity to understand, interpret, and learn from leading indicators but this is challenging for a number of reasons, not at least of which is our obsession with lagging indicators. To demonstrate this concept, I'm going to tell you about one of my favorite mindfulness techniques, paint by numbers. From one perspective, paint by numbers is a prepackaged formula for artistic success. The canvas is laid out, the materials are provided, and the action is as simple as matching color to number. But that's not what it feels like to do it especially on the big complex projects I prefer. When I started my first paint-by-numbers canvas, I knew I wanted the picture on the box, but I had no realistic idea of what progress would look like. Naively, I assumed the leading indicators would simply be the component parts of the final picture. I would paint this part, then that, then that, creating a linear progression from blank canvas into early satisfaction, followed eventually by complete satisfaction. In reality, The experience is a complex array of delight, mistakes, concentration, frustration, doubt, questions, effort, and learning. To find the groove of mindfulness amidst all of this, and to consistently achieve pleasing artistic renderings, I had to translate this experience into the true leading indicators, and the picture on the box wasn't going to help. 
leading indicators often have no apparent connection to the lagging indicator. So here are my leading indicators for a successful painting experience. It matters if I do it regularly. It matters whether the paint is a good consistency and whether I have a good brush. It matters that I change the water regularly and that I understand the color key and the numbering technique of each specific canvas. It matters that I have strategies for dealing with my mistakes because the mistakes are inevitable. The wrong color, prior colors obscuring the instructions, paint splotches in the middle of the canvas from the ridiculous number of times I drop the brush. It matters that I notice the mistakes, that I accept that I make mistakes, that I make good decisions about which mistakes matter and which ones don't, and that I know how to reconcile the mistakes that do matter. When I achieve success on those metrics, my satisfaction on the lagging indicators is assured. If I had stayed distracted looking for the final image on that first canvas, I would have seen no satisfaction at all, likely abandoning the endeavor altogether. It's particularly challenging to put aside lagging indicators when you're working on a grant-funded project, since external evaluators and annual reporting mechanisms are all designed to emphasize lagging indicators. You've been given money based on the importance of a particular lagging indicator and on the potential validity of your proposed solution. The strong temptation, then, is to stick with the plan and try to prove yourself based on the metrics that are getting all the attention. The first step in switching from lagging to leading indicators is to focus on a priori leading indicators, design components that past experience and research has already associated with the lagging indicator. In our final mastery class with the Gold PIs, we asked them to identify these components in their projects. Here are Carolyn, Mary, Laura, Grady, and Kelly from that discussion. In the piece in the design of geos as well, we actually got people practicing the bystander intervention. I mean, that, that to me was a design piece that, you know, that has been shown in the research and it should actually make a difference. If people do things out loud and actually try it in the moment, uh, they're more likely to step up when it is a real situation. I think one thing in our design for the Field Institute is the plan that teams and individuals will sort of take what they've learned and put together at the Institute, go back and implement change at their Institute, and then report back to us what they've implemented and whether or not it was successful. We feel like the idea that we're cultivating people who can do the code switching, and that's a big part of our theory of change, is that we'll have these people who can navigate gracefully the science community divide and then provide a, a better pathway and climate for, for the geosciences. That's a huge part of our theory of change. For a lot of people, I think just being nominated or being asked to step up in some way was at least an alert that they had some leadership abilities or some influence of some sort. And of course, that doesn't mean that they're using that that influence for the most effective or positive ways. But I think that's one of the biggest things we did was just highlighting their influence that already existed. I'm also thinking about the tension between um, the social scientists and the scientists. I sense a healthy working relationship or I sense a healthy attitude mm -hmm. among the geoscientists, and, and I think it goes both ways. I sense a, a healthy attitude among um, social scientists to become sensitive to the geoscience space. 
Relatedly, there is a generic a priori leading indicator for projects such as these. Does the design strike a chord with potential participants? Here, Lisa, Carolyn, and I each talk about variations on this indicator. Looking at the number and the range of applicants that apply to the Field Institute, there's certainly a clear need. And based on the way we've described and what we plan to do at the Institute, we certainly think we're on the right track in providing a forum for field leaders to really discuss, you know, challenging issues that go on, you know, in these physical settings. The fact that people kept coming back to me is a indicator that leadership development is happening. You know, people that either didn't come or showed up for one thing as if it might be enough. I'm not confident there, but I have confidence that leaders are developing. They may not be done just because they keep coming back. So I think that one of the biggest things I've gotten out of these sessions really is, you know, your great questions. Because I think that every time you ask a question that makes me think, it helps me to get my own thoughts in order and solidify my own opinions, morals, ethics, thoughts around it all, you know, um, kind of where I'm coming from. And, and I think it helps me, once I've articulated it to myself and to you, it helps me to then articulate it to other people in my work as well. I'm really grateful for the very thoughtful questions that you all posed, which has helped me to really, you know, think about my thinking. Are there opportunities to practice what is being learned? And do people engage with those opportunities? Are there accountability mechanisms and do people make use of them? Can people communicate well in the complex political, social, and academic environments where this work is happening? Do people realize the power and leadership they have and are they willing to put this to use? Are we increasing participants' capacity to collaborate across different forms of expertise and experience? Are we framing questions and opportunities that people care about? Do people show up and do they keep coming back? Do they feel stretched in useful ways? None of these will develop broadening participation leaders on their own. But from the work that's been done to date, we know that each is a leading indicator of the potential success of leadership development efforts. But the real power of leading indicators comes from grounded or emergent leading indicators. These indicators are discovered within the experience rather than being an explicit part of the design. For example, Kelly and I designed Golden to build a community of changemakers focused on the development of leadership within these five projects. In the course of our conversations with them, though, we identified an important leading indicator that we hadn't specifically planned to achieve. I meant to tell you this this morning. I think I've just had two clinicing conversations so far. In both cases, the teams are going to continue on. They're like, we're not done. But they took responsibility to create something together that is so tangible to them now. Now the question is, we exist. Now what more can we do with this? It's a sign of the leadership that is developing. It's not just leading a given plan. It's leading with the question of what's next, what didn't get done yet. Discovery of leading indicators often happens within specific experiences, as Carolyn talks about here. We were talking about the difference between diversity, inclusion, and social justice. And um, there was just this moment where she, like, it just clicked for her, and she went, oh, 
I have spent all this time thinking that inclusion was what we were going for because I knew that diversity wasn't what we were going for. It was inclusion. And now you're telling me that was wrong. <laughs> you know, she's like, we should be actually going for social justice. It's like her mind was blown, you know. And so it was a really powerful moment in that workshop where she just got it and you knew that she was forever changed because of that conversation we had. And it was it was awesome. Because these moments are anecdotal by nature, they are often missed or dismissed by thought processes trained only to look for lagging indicators and logical progressions. But here's a big difference between lagging and leading indicators. While lagging indicators depend on replicability to be meaningful, a leading indicator does not need to be replicable in order to be useful. Instead, it can be a demonstration of what is possible or new avenues to explore. For example, the situation Carolyn described could point to a new design element rather than the replication of what happened in this particular instance. The next iteration of this training could emphasize participation reflection on definitions and the sources and implications of those definitions. Leading indicators don't prove change, they guide it. Leading indicators can also emerge from evaluation data, as Kathy describes. So I had two of them, and I just happened to be writing up our results in our paper uh, today. So it, it was easy for me to pull them out. One of the major outcomes was people could recognize situations in their day-to-day life that diversity and inclusions were issues at play that they would have never noticed before. So we, we gave them a framework to recognize when those opportunities came up, and they were taking action in those situations. And then there were three people that created some type of institutional structure that was now going to look at diversity and inclusion specifically. Hearts of Gold provided an intellectual framework to help their developing leaders recognize opportunities for action, an a priori leading indicator. But how people engaged those frameworks and the specific actions they took as a result are more complex than the training situation could predict. So a grounded approach to data analysis is necessary in order to articulate the particular leading indicators that demonstrate that change is in motion. Another challenge in the search for leading indicators is to cast a wide enough net. Again, leading indicators are not about proving efficacy. They help us recognize the potential for it. Leading indicators are suggestive, pointing in directions to explore. But don't confuse leading indicators with unsubstantiated claims. We're not talking about inflating results. Just the opposite, in fact. For a leading indicator to be meaningful, it has to effectively guide us in the direction of success, and that can't be done by making false assertions. Leading indicators are often a hopeful, glass-half-full kind of perspective, celebrating and fueling the possibility of change so that change becomes more possible. But that's not the same as claiming to find water in an empty glass. Which takes us to a final challenge related to leading indicators, a category we call counterintuitive leading indicators. These indicators of success depend on a willingness to name the emptiness of the glass. While lagging indicators are always associated with desired change, leading indicators may describe dynamics that are undesirable, on the surface at least. Here, Kelly talks about how we saw this in the conflict that emerged at the Ideas Lab. And I think about, you know, where we started with this group at the Ideas Lab and the, the frustration 
because many of them came to the ideas lab without ever having done their own kind of reflection. And it was evident in the language that they used, which was superficial, it was targeted outward, gonna fix the students, we need to develop leadership in students, uh, I'm gonna fix the people in my department, it wasn't turned inward at all. And I think the personal growth that we've seen, and I'm thinking about the clashes, the personality conflicts and clashes that happened at the Ideas Lab, and looking back on it now, how they have worked through those challenges, and in giving them the space, I think we've seen, and surprisingly so, just how reflective this group can be about what has brought them to this work. This theme was also articulated by a number of participants in the mastery class discussion. The second, I think, indicator that what we're doing is valuable um, comes out of some of the struggles that our group went through in coming together and trying to form. And I think those struggles came from passion and experiences that each of us had had that made us strong-willed or strong-minded about the importance of what we're doing. Well, I think to build on that, I'm going to be really depressing now, but I think that one thing I really see as an indicator we're making change is, is frustration and anger and burnout in many cases. Because I think that people get out of their complacency and they start to try and make change and then they realize they're hitting up against brick walls and they and they get frustrated with their colleagues and angry with their colleagues that this is not a priority for their colleagues. And then they start to feel you know, frustrated and angry and burned out because they don't have a community. And so I think that that is actually an interesting sign that they have changed and they're then trying to make change and they're then struggling realizing what this landscape actually looks like. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the part where we have to think about how do we then go and pick them up so that they're not doing this alone, like we all had to do it alone. You know, we get to scoop them up and say, it's okay, you're part of a community, we're going to hold your hand, it's going to be all right. Um, and make that less less painful for them before they actually start to become uh, effective. Because there's that part in there where you're railing against everything so hard that you're just not being effective and it's only then when you get to take a deep breath and you know self-care 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 that you actually then start to make change and sometimes it can take a long time to get there because you've got to prep those institutions for years before the often before they're ready to actually start making real change you know you said that frustration where you kind of want to just give up you feel like you've been beating your head against the wall i think across a university campus there are many people that are feeling that way But unless we have a vehicle to come together and realize I'm not alone in this, I mean, that's where the frustration is that I'm alone in this and I can't make progress. When we have a way to come together, whether it's a workshop, I don't know, other things that that, that some leader has organized or that we take the initiative to be the leader to organize, we remain isolated. And that is the depressing part. It's going to be expected that we get a little defensive sometimes and frustrated because as a geoscience community, we haven't done a very good job. I mean, it's not like we've been working at this for that long. I mean, okay, so there were some programs in the 70s and you know, in the 80s, there were a lot of gains by, by women in geoscience, but really putting representation of people of color in the earth sciences and the broad geosciences in more in the center of what we do 
is young. And so we're, you know, hitting pitfalls and we're trying things and we're still pointing fingers because yes, you know, white women shouldn't be the only marker of diversity in our field and, but we need them to help, you know, work with us all to make gains. And, and I do find a lot of inspiration, I guess, from the, the passion I completely agree. And I also think there's a trust barrier to overcome as well, because we all know people working in social justice who just get it so wrong sometimes. And so, you know, how do we work to build trust within our communities that we can trust each other to call each other out when we're getting it wrong? And we can trust other people that they're going to get it right most of the time. We're not all going to get it right all the time. But, you know, how do you build that up? Um, because I think that's a, that's a barrier I see a lot in social justice circles. For example, we don't trust white women to do this work because white women obviously, you know, often fall into being racist while they're trying to support other white women. And so, you know, how do you build up that trust amongst everybody so we can work together as a community? And I think that's a really hard thing to do. Tension, conflict, frustration, anger, burnout, feelings of isolation, defensiveness... We too often assign such things the immediate designation of failure instead of seeing them as early signs of success. This is partly due to an addiction to linear processes and partly a tendency to assign value based on emotional valence. Leaders of successful broadening participation efforts know better than to call this failure. They know that things often get worse before they get better. But this isn't just a fact about diversity efforts. The basic formula for stories of the human journey emphasizes that disillusionment follows awareness and precedes the integration that leads to real progress. If lagging indicators are a pronouncement, leading indicators are a conversation. What does this mean? What else do I need to know? What might I try next? The more you ask, the more you'll learn. And the more you learn, the more the final destination comes into view. And as with any journey, the closer you get to the goal, the more you refine your understanding of that goal. By following the leading indicators when I'm painting, I don't arrive at the pretty picture from the box. Instead, I arrive at a picture that I love, that has unique components I couldn't have planned for, and meaning I didn't know to anticipate. And as we know from the last episode, love is a key ingredient in broadening participation. So in conclusion, lagging indicators are a rallying call, motivating funding and justifying attention and resources. Lagging indicators are featured in reports and publications and in annual reviews and tenure portfolios. Lagging indicators are replicable and objective, serving as the arbiter in summative evaluation. Did this effort succeed? Leading indicators are sometimes fragile or fleeting, may be contradictory or confusing, and are almost always insufficient on their own. Leading indicators like seedlings may be trampled before they are seen or given a chance to grow. Leading indicators often require additional resources, like oxygen to an early flame. And as with fire, sometimes efforts to fan the flames end up putting them out instead. Because of this, lagging indicators are the sure thing and get the lion's share of our attention but leading indicators are the base pairs in the DNA of making change. We need to map the genome of a particular change effort if we are to achieve it. 
In the final episode of this podcast series on leadership for broadening participation, we'll use the map we've laid out across these nine episodes to return to our key questions. What is leadership for broadening participation? And how do we know if we are developing it? Thanks for listening to this episode of Leadership for Broadening Participation, copyright 2018, Cardia Group LLC. We would like to thank the Gold Project leaders for the insight from their interviews and the Golden community for their support and inspiration. Special thanks to Diana Cardia and Kelly Mack for leading the professional development aspect of Golden and for producing these podcasts. Thanks to Karen Williams for graphic design and Cindy Glover for editing and technical support. Music is by Kit Kat Club under a Creative Commons license. This material is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1748340. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation. Thank you.